Amen. Praise the Lord. You all ready for a little gospel? Well, I'm sorry. I looked, and the only one I could find was a great big gospel. So uh, let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This one, I guess, is a little summary of a great big gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures." Notice that in the glorious message of Christ's sacrificial atoning death, burial, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to remind us, he even uses the word, the phrase, keep in memory, but he, he reminds us twice in those two short verses that this is all in accordance with God's word. It's, it's, a, it's a, an incredible miracle of grace, and if Mankind had just somehow dawned on the scene moments before it all happened. It would still be an incredible miracle. But what we see in reality is thousands of years of human history and hundreds, probably if we knew the whole truth, thousands or millions of multiplied gospel in miniature messages all along through God's word pointing to their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Christ is our example. Who being in the form of God, this is Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It was no illegitimate claim for Jesus to say, I and my Father are one. It was nothing that he also that uh, to be clung to or grasped in a desperate fashion. You know, how often do we, are we willing to give up something that we've earned or, or, or inherited or worked hard for and, and we feel like we finally got it? It'd be hard to just let go of that. Some promotion, some, you know, opportunity, some accumulation of wealth, a family. We, we've acquired this. We, we don't want to let go of it. But the Son of God who had everything, opened his hand, laid aside his royal robes, all the trappings of divinity, all the prerogatives of divinity, and we read, he was, he made himself of no reputation. He poured himself out, he emptied himself, and took upon him the form of a servant, a bond slave, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And not just any death, even the death of the cross, which I told you the Assyrians introduced to the world, the cruel, torturous method of uh, execution of their enemies. They lined the roads with men on, on pikes. Crucifixion. And then the Romans... Uh, reinvigorated this uh, method of capital punishment and execution. And Jesus, who had legions of angels still at his disposal, didn't cry out for God to take him from the cross, didn't cry out for the angelic hosts. He's the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He didn't cry out to his armies to come and vanquish the enemy. No, he himself went into the jaws of death with his eyes wide open, gave up the ghost, laid down his life, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because of all this, because of this incredible reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. There's something in our human nature that has a tendency to resent other people receiving honor and glory. Well, they, didn't, they don't really deserve all of this. Or, well, that really should have been me. Or, well, I know things about that person nobody else knows. But let me tell you, there is no credible claim 
against Jesus being the one man in all of history who truly deserved this exaltation by God Almighty. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue, your tongue, your tongue should confess, and praise God, your tongues have confessed this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Are you a believer this morning? Do you trust and rest in the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you believe that? It's to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. It's not that you were smarter, quicker, um, more uh, amenable, just more agreeable. And so you were willing to believe what others just couldn't bring themselves to believe. Brother Brady and I talked about this. You know, there's uh, this uh, notion that is permeates society, uh, religious society today, of uh, easy believism. You know, just believe. Well, it's true that you're called to believe, but you're never called to just believe. It's not that sort of faith. It's not a just, uh, you know, a mere kind of faith. It is a faith that comes from God Himself through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the working of his mighty power. And just what kind of mighty power are we talking about that it takes to bring true faith to your heart and to your mind? It's the very same power, which verse 20 continues, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. The power that it takes to resurrect a man who's been dead in the grave for three days to bring that dead person back to life and then to take him not just to the moon, which is a pretty major accomplishment of the human race, but far beyond in an interdimensional uh, ascendance into heaven itself, the very power that it took to transform our slain Savior into the living, ruling, reigning king of the universe, seated in heaven at this moment, is the very same power that God exercises every time he turns a sinner from the night of darkness into the light of his glorious presence. You believe according to the working of his mighty power. And he set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He, he resurrected, exalted Christ to be head specifically over Fellowship Church. Friends, you are heirs of an amazing, eternal, everlastingly glorious inheritance. You are his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So let's go back to Esther one more time. Let's look at the last verse of Esther chapter 10, that little three-verse chapter where the king raises the taxes. Let me remind you about those characters that Brother Paul mentioned in prayer this morning. Ahasuerus, his name, uh, according to the best scholarly research that I could find, uh, is uh, it signifies the Lion King. This was also the king of Persia known in other writings as Xerxes. 
There were several kings named Xerxes. This was one of them and a very accomplished one. The Lion King. Sitting on his throne, extending his scepter when he feels like it, banishing people when he feels like it, ordering the deaths of millions when he feels like it. The Lion King, the untouchable monarch over a vast world empire. And the man that ascended to be his right-hand man after the, the conspirators' plot was foiled and, and, uh, and, and Haman filled the vacancy. Haman's name means magnificent. So you've got the Lion King sitting on his throne with his huge gold scepter. You've got Haman who is just chomping at the bit, sitting, standing right beside him. Haman the Magnificent. And then you've got this other fellow, Mordecai, whose name means little man. You've got two guys who think they're everything. And you've got a guy whose name means I'm a nobody. I'm just a little man. And not only that, he was a little man from a little tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember the end of the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin was almost annihilated. Uh, some Benjamites uh, did some unspeakable, uh, uh, violent things, uh, and, and it was so horrifying and disgusting that all their own brethren, all the other 11 tribes of Israel, turned against them and wiped them out. And if it weren't for some borrowed wives from another tribe, they, there would have been no tribe of Benjamin left at all. And uh, so Benjamin survives the tribe by the, the, the skin of their teeth. And just this tiny little tribe, in fact, so small and so comparatively insignificant, even though Saul the king came from Benjamin and, uh, and Saul of Tarsus came from the tribe of Benjamin. So there's some notable characters from this tribe. It still was a tiny and virtually insignificant tribe. So small and insignificant that when you refer to the southern tribes, the two and a half tribes, uh, Judah, Benjamin, and the half tribe of Manasseh, you refer to them as Judah. That was the name of the southern tribes of Israel because the, the other two were so small by comparison. So, so Benjamin, a tiny tribe, uh, Mordecai, a little guy from a tiny tribe. These were the ones who were left behind uh, in, in Persia when, when Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra, and all the other tens of thousands of Jews went back to rebuild Jerusalem and to resettle Judea, uh, Judah, which came to be known as Judea. They're the forgotten ones. They're the insignificant ones. They're the overlooked ones. And yet, at the end of this book of Esther, we read in the third verse, the very last verse of this book, For Mordecai, the Jew, was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. So he started out lowly, he ended up exalted, and the man who thought he was magnificent ended up destroyed, and the Lion King, who thought he was the most powerful man in the world, ended up just like a pair of dice being rolled by the hand of God, as the poor, the, the casting of lots in Esther uh, is, is so emphasized. Uh, Ahasuerus was not in control at all. God was the one in control, and God's the one who exalted this nobody to be somebody. When I read that passage, I can't help but think of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, so many striking parallels. Uh, Ahasuerus handed his ring to Mordecai. Pharaoh handed his ring to Joseph. Ahasuerus said to Mordecai, pass whatever law you think is good. Mordecai, uh, Pharaoh said to Joseph, pass the laws we need to pass so we can survive this famine that you prophesied to us about. It says in Genesis chapter 41, as Pharaoh speaks to Joseph, that you're going to be higher than anybody else in the land except me. In fact, let's go over there and look at that real quick. Keep your finger in, and Esther will be coming back, Lord willing. But uh, let's look at Genesis chapter 41 and verse 40. Pharaoh said, well, let's back up to verse 39. Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God has showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. 
And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. So just like uh, whatever plane the president happens to be riding on, even if it's not the fancy expensive one, it automatically becomes Air Force One. And whatever plane the vice president is riding on is automatically Air Force Two. Well, Joseph was riding in ground force two, chariot number two, the, the, the backup chariot for Pharaoh's chariot, the most glorious gold-plated fancy chariot with all the healthiest horses to pull this uh, new vizier over all of, of Egypt. Joseph exalted as Mordecai is exalted to this position that is literally next to the king. But you know, there's another person who's exalted to sit next to the king at the end of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is miraculously transported into heaven's realm. We read in Mark sixteen nineteen. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat where? On the right hand of God. He said at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And the Holy Spirit through Paul again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 goes to some interesting pains to explain to us the, the station of Christ and God the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, he says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Not just the mighty Egyptians, not just the enemy of famine or plague, not even the the cruel edict of the Persian Empire to destroy the entire Jewish race, not the, the, the series, the seemingly endless series of enemies that God's chosen people under the Old Covenant continued to face and God from whom God continued to deliver them. But it says the Lord Jesus Christ must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And think, when you think of, of the destruction of death, certainly 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter in, in, the, in all of Scripture. Um, certainly it's about uh, death being swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It's talking about corporeal death, bodily death. But remember that the word death at its root means separation. And remember that God's word to Adam in the Garden of Eden was, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, Adam began to die bodily when he rebelled against God and partook of the forbidden fruit. But God's word was true, and Satan's word was false. Satan said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt not surely die. Adam did, in the very day he ate of the fruit, die a spiritual death. He died the death of separation from Almighty God, his creator and friend. The one who walked with him in the cool of the garden. The one who spoke with him daily. The one who provided for him everything. Adam, this man of great wisdom and capacity and ability, was suddenly cowering in fear, hiding behind leaves of a fig tree. Because Adam had died. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all, you and I, have sinned. That's why there is such a thing as death, bodily death. But that's just a picture of the greater and much more horrific death of being separated from the one who, as we sang today, is worthy to be loved by me and all mankind. In my own righteousnesses, which are as filthy rags, man at his best state is altogether vanity. In my own merits, I have nothing, no way to bridge the gap, no way to resurrect myself from that spiritual death. 
and neither do you. But God Almighty has made the way. And he will ultimately destroy every vestige of that last enemy. Bodily death, sickness, weakness, infirmity, old age. I used to feel sorry as a kid for the old folks in church when we'd sing these songs about, you know, a land where we'll never grow old. I'm like, come on, I mean, give the old people some credit. Now as I'm getting older, I realize why the old people were so happy to sing that song. You know, it's, uh, yeah, age is just a symptom, a precursor to death. Do you have any symptoms? The doctor asks. Well, yes, doc, I'm dying. The moment that we first begin to live, we all begin to die, the hymn writer said. But the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he, God, hath put all things under his, Christ's feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. He's telling us that this is exactly the arrangement that is typified by Joseph and Mordecai, where they are next to the king. And Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, sits next to the king on the right hand of God Almighty, who has given him all power in heaven and earth and has declared that death as the last and final enemy will be destroyed and defeated. So... Mordecai, a sinner, an imperfect man, just like Joseph. We don't see a lot about their flaws in Scripture. We do about so many biblical characters. But even though they're held up as noble uh, persons in Scripture, we know that like all the human race, these were sinful men too. And yet these men picture for us, and again, hundreds of other places, as you turn through the pages of the Bible, I would urge you to look on every page for Where's Jesus. It's much more exciting than the children's book, Where's Waldo? Uh, you, you open the page and you say, Jesus is somewhere on this page. Lord, help me see him. Mordecai was next under the king. Mordecai was also great among the Jews. Joseph had what seemed to be an impending death sentence accused by Potiphar's wife and uh, enraging her husband, Potiphar, the captain of the guard. Joseph was cast into a prison where his lot could have easily been the same as the baker to await execution. In fact, when Pharaoh called him forth to interpret his dream, it says they went to get him from the dungeon. And when they went to get him from the dungeon, he had to clean himself up because he was in such a state that he was not fit to stand before a king. Mordecai with ashes on his head and sackcloth on and his garments rent, sitting in the gate of the palace, also literally had a sentence of death upon him. He had a gallows 75 feet tall waiting for him in Haman's backyard and an edict stamped by the king's ring that said Mordecai and everybody related to him distantly will all die. These men were under the sentence of death, but as they stood as deliverers for their people in their times, just as, again, symbols, pictures, types of Christ, they did not actually have to face the death. They did not actually have to go through the death. It was a picture, but it was an incomplete picture because the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone of all mankind never deserved death because he'd never sinned, and death only comes by sin. Yet he took our sins upon him, and in taking our sins upon him, he took upon himself the sentence of death. It was hardly the Romans who put him to death. It was not even the murderous Jewish leadership crying out, crucify him, crucify him. The Lord Jesus Christ had demonstrated time and again that he was impervious to their plots, even the attacks of Satan himself. He said, he hath nothing in me. There was no Velcro on Jesus that the devil could stick his, his tricks and, and attacks and snares and bombs to. No, Jesus walked untouched and unharmed through all of the repeated attempts to assassinate him. He was once on the edge of a cliff and they were getting ready to throw him off the cliff. You know how he got away? He walked right through the crowd. The very crowd that was trying to grab him and throw him over the cliff, he just literally slipped through their fingers and walked away. They tried to stone him. They tried to condemn him to death numerous times. But on this occasion... Under the apparent influence of the Jewish leadership, 
and under the apparent power of Rome, Jesus stands before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and says, you would have no power at all over me except it were given you from above. As a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And he intentionally, consciously, purposefully laid down his life, gave up the ghost, and plunged into the jaws of death. And even his disciples who had heard him say, the closer it got to the time of the final entry into Jerusalem and his trial and crucifixion, the more Jesus presaged what was going to happen by telling them, finally, very in stark terms, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. And they said, I wonder what metaphorical thing he's trying to tell us. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it, that this humble servant of God, this man of God, this son of God and son of man, could actually be claimed by death. And he couldn't be. But because he bore, let's make it very personal and specific. I believe, Brother Brady, I believe in a personal Savior. I don't believe you accept Jesus to make him your personal Savior. I believe because he is a personal Savior, he accepts you. He's made us accepted in the Beloved. And so this Savior, let's not say the sins of all his family. Let's say your sins. You personally. Me. My sins. Andrew Huffman's sins. Alone were enough to condemn him to death. Because death comes by sin. And so he took my sins upon him and walked into the jaws of death. But the scripture here in Esther chapter 10 verse 3 says that Mordecai became great among the Jews. Jesus became great among his elect family, not just the natural Jewish nation. But his people chosen and redeemed out of every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue. And in the very moment when Satan couldn't believe his eyes that he was actually going to achieve the death of the Son of God, Satan's head was crushed. Thou shalt bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. Satan's head was fatally wounded because Jesus' seeming defeat was actually the greatest victory of all time. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, the angel had said, for he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people, you, from your sins. And he's done it. Joseph's brothers had very famously rejected him in a most cruel and uh, duplicitous way tricked him, tried to kill him, and sold him into slavery and, and, and presumptive death, and then went back and lied to their father and said he'd already been killed by a wild animal. His brothers turned against him and rejected him. John 1.11 tells us that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was despised and rejected of men, just as Mordecai was rejected, despised, and doomed to condemnation and death. But that rejection turns into the most amazing acceptance. It turns into an amazing, uh, completely in your wildest dreams, you couldn't have imagined that Joseph would be reconciled with his brothers and would be responsible for their well-being. And they would receive his grace and goodness with trembling and fear at first, to be sure. And even when their father died, after they'd been there several years, they were still in fear that Joseph's real anger was going to finally pour out against them. And he just smiled at them and said, you meant it for evil. But God meant all this for good to save much people alive as at this day. You tried to kill me, but God meant this so that you wouldn't be killed. So that you wouldn't get what's coming to you. You wouldn't die a horrible death of starvation or a, or a death in the criminal justice system for your betrayal and hatred 
They literally hated their own brother. Jesus says they hated me without a cause. Mordecai was despised, rejected, and hated. But then just as Joseph and his brothers were reconciled, Mordecai now becomes the third. You had the, the, the conspirators who were condemned. You had Haman who was hanged on his own gallows. And then you had Mordecai sitting next to the king, accepted by the king, and accepted by all his brethren. Maybe the reason, this is speculative on my part, but maybe the reason Mordecai was sitting in the gate every day was not just to be as close to Esther as he could and try to hear any news from the palace that he could or convey any news inside the palace, but maybe he was sitting there because his, his own brethren had no use for him. He was, again, a nobody. He was just a little guy. But when Esther said, we need three days of fasting and prayer, she sent Mordecai to round up all the people, all the Jews in the city, and she said, you all need to be fasting with us these three days. And so ultimately, Mordecai was accepted, as we read here, accepted of the multitude of his brethren. And now, in his position of glory and power, it says that Mordecai was seeking the wealth of his people. Joseph sought the wealth of his brethren. He made sure that they got the prime farmland in Goshen, uh, the, the best place for them to go, and he he did it through a little bit of uh, uh, strategic thinking and negotiation with Pharaoh, saying, uh, you know, my people have always been sheep herders and cattle farmers, and I know you Egyptians can't stand that sort of thing. What do you think if we go way off on the backside and take that prime farmland over there in Goshen? And Pharaoh says, yeah, yeah, it's all yours. Take them. Uh, we, we, we love you. We respect you. We appreciate you. Now get out of our sight. And so he sends them all over to Goshen, and Joseph provided for the wealth not just the survival and famine, but the wealth and prosperity of his family. Mordecai now is in a position where the scripture says he was able to seek not just the survival of the Jewish race, but their prosperity, their well-being. He was in a position to influence the laws of the land and the culture of the, 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 the godless society in which he lived for the good of his people. But this is not just talking about material wealth. The word here is the same word, good, that's used when God is creating the world and he saw at the end of every day what he had made and he said it was good. And at the end of all six days of creation, he said it was good and very good. Mordecai was seeking the good of his people. He was seeking their well-being. He was speaking their, seeking their prosperity, not just in, in material terms, but their holistic, well-rounded well-being. Now, Joseph's generation is gone. Mordecai's generation is gone. But there's one today seated on the right hand of the Father on high, whoever lives to make intercession for us, who tells us that all things will work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You have a friend in the most powerful seat in the universe. You have someone who's watching out for you. And every time the accuser, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, tries to raise a charge against you, however, however justified it seems, however well-grounded, in fact, it may be. Andrew did this. Andrew did that. I'm like the old preacher from uh, South Georgia, maybe someplace around here, um, J.R. Respus. Uh, a friend in the ministry came to him one time and said, here's what the ministers, here's what these, they're trying to cook up a, a thing against you and, and, and besmirch your reputation. And they're saying this and this and this and this. And he just looked at him and he said, they might be right. It might be true. I might be just that wretched. And on another occasion he said, well, I'm glad that that's all they know about me. You know, when, when we have a clear view of our own sins, we realize we, we deserve nothing at all. And if Satan would stand and accuse us and no one would speak up for us, we'd probably agree with him. We'd probably say, you're right. I am an undone wretch. You're right. I have turned against my God. You're right. I have ignored his commands. You're right. I haven't taken his word as seriously as I should have. But, you know, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And every time an attempt is made to bring condemnation on you as God's child, your friend, your advocate, your elder brother stands before the bar of God's eternal justice and says, that debt's been paid. 
That's been taken care of. I took their sins and I gave them my righteousness. Colossians chapter 2. Keep your finger in Esther. In Colossians chapter 2, we read a beautiful description of Christ's work on the cross. Let's start in verse 13. Colossians 2.13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. How did he do it? Blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. I want to explain some words in this beautiful verse. So blotting out is an erasure or an overriding of what was on the page. The handwriting, the word here used for handwriting, often in the New Testament time signified the evidence of a debt, like an IOU or like your credit card statement that comes in the, in the mail every month. And you wish it didn't come and you wish it didn't say what it says, but there it is. It's the handwriting of the ordinances that's against you and you've got to bear up under it. Well, Jesus said he took the, the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us. God's law was right and good and true. The problem wasn't with God's law. The problem was with you and me. And, and therefore, God's law created a sentence of death in us and for us. It created a debt like the 10,000 talents. Brother Bob did the math for me yesterday. $3.5 billion in today's dollars is that 10,000 talent debt that the king forgave his servant. This billions of dollars of debt that you could never repay. Jesus took the handwriting of those ordinances. And, and the phrase, took it out of the way, has the idea of bearing it up or lifting it up. In other words, he took it with him onto the cross of Calvary. I picture it in his hand as they drove the nails through his hands. And his blood soaked the paper. And the evidence of your debt is gone forever. He didn't just destroy the evidence. He destroyed the debt. He paid the debt and fulfilled the penalty that you deserved. Took the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, uh, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. There was a handwriting, an ordinance that was against Mordecai too, wasn't there? It had the king's seal on it. And he couldn't destroy it because he's a type of Christ, but he's not Christ himself. He couldn't destroy that edict, but by God's providence, he overrode that edict with another edict that preserved God's people for another day, another year. But Christ, by blotting out forever the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, has preserved his people for all eternity. And having spoiled principalities and powers... That means he defeated them and he took all their stuff, like the spoils of war. He destroyed them. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And it's in this context that Paul says, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't be judging each other in matters of meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. The body is of Christ. Focus on the focus. Make the important thing the important thing in your mind and in your life, at the, the center of your values and what drives you and what gets you up out of bed every morning. The, um, the redemption of his people, I want to read in Romans chapter 11, a passage which I'm going to confess to you, I don't fully understand. I don't fully understand the role that the old Jewish nation plays in God's eternal plan and purpose. I'm quite sure that it's not the role that dispensational theology would teach us, that they really are God's all along favorites. And in the end, the church is just a great parenthesis and Gentile salvation is an afterthought and a happenstance. I know that's not true at all. But in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 Paul says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. 
that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now Paul has already explained to us in Romans and in Galatians and in other places that all they that are of the faith of Abraham are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So when he says all Israel, I don't think all the genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because we know they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Not all of the Jewish race is redeemed by God's mercy. But there may well come a day when a multitude of the genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are are brought into the place where they acknowledge from the heart that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and their Redeemer. But it's not just for old Israel. It's for all Israel. It's for Israelites who don't deserve to be Israelites, like Rahab the harlot, like Ruth the Moabitess, these, these saints grafted into the genealogy of Christ, and you today grafted into the tree of God's grace and goodness. All Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I love it when God turns away Jacob from ungodliness. That's a good thing. That's practical holiness and sanctification. But it's even better when God turns away ungodliness from Jacob, when he takes the sin away from us altogether. He's already defeated death, hell, and sin, and Satan. He's already bruised the serpent's head. He's delivered us from the penalty of sin at the cross of Calvary. He is delivering us today from the power of sin in our daily lives. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He sets the captives free. He said, this day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears when he stood and read that from the scroll of the old prophet. But finally, friends, one day we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. There won't be any temptation. There won't be any heartache. There won't be any tears, Revelation tells us. It actually tells us he'll wipe away all tears. And then he says there'll be no tears. And again, a conversation with Thomas Mann years and years ago is stuck in my mind on this point. He said, what if, just what if, what if when we get to heaven, we get to see everything just as it was, just as it happened. And we see and are reminded of sins that we've forgotten ourselves that we ever committed. And we know as we stand there beside the nail-pierced hands of our Savior that it was those sins that pierced his hands. And our eyes well up with tears. And he lovingly wipes them away. And we never cry again. The story of Joseph is a story of turning mourning into joy. The story of Mordecai is a story story of sorrow replaced with celebration. But friends, these are but faint shadows of the sorrows that will be wiped away from the eyes of God's children as they enter into everlasting fellowship with him in perfection. He led captivity captive, Ephesians 4, 8 says, and he gave gifts unto men. He still provides for the wealth, the prosperity of his children to this very day and to all eternity. And then at the end of Esther, he says, not only does he seek the wealth of his people, but Mordecai is speaking peace to all his seed. Speaking peace. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He's the one who says, not as this world gives, give I peace unto you. My peace is an everlasting peace. In this world, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. But it's not merely the peace of of, um, equanimity, of, of calmness of spirit. It's not merely the peace of being able to rest on your pillow at night. We're talking also here about a legal peace and a holistic peace. It's the peace of a treaty between two warring armies. You were in the army that waved their swords in God's face. You were in the army that was bound and determined not to submit no matter what. And then by a stroke of God's providential and personal grace, you threw down your weapons of rebellion and he adopted you into his army and even into his family. He said, you're mine. That is real and lasting peace. That is ultimate 
reconciliation. Those intransigent problems of relationships that we struggle with here in life. I've had to counsel dear old ladies who just wanted to have a kind word from their sister before they died. And they never got it. I just told them, told the dear old sister, just, you know, you keep the door open. And you pray for her. And you love her. And you try to let this go. You forgive her in your heart. Even though she's done nothing to earn or even ask for your forgiveness. You get your heart right with God and your attitude toward your sister and maybe she'll come around. She never did. There are situations in this life in which we don't ever see that peace come to what it ought to be. But friends, in the ultimate reality, there is ultimate peace. A peace of God that surpasses all human understanding that will keep, guard your hearts and minds by Christ Jesus. This is what the Prince of Peace has done for his family. Ephesians 2, so, uh, so, making, uh, so of twain making one, making peace. So uh, making one new man, making peace. Sorry, I misquoted that. He brings reconciliation between rebellious sinners and a just and holy God. In Joseph's time and in Mordecai's time, this work of peace involved unifying a disunified people. Mordecai unified the Jews of the city of Shushan at Esther's directive. Joseph ultimately reconciled his family and and brought them into the land of Goshen in a time of peace. It involved foiling the plots of the evil ones who would destroy them. Joseph's own brothers were his evil ones. And of course, the outside circumstances of famine. Mordecai foiled the plot of those conspirators and then foiled the plot of Haman. And Jesus Christ, friends, has foiled the plot of the devil. This is the one time I I feel a slight twinge of feeling sorry for the devil. He spent thousands of years in anticipation of, of making everything that God made beautiful, making it ugly and broken. That's his whole purpose, is just to sow chaos, destruction, pain, and misery. You've heard the expression, misery loves company. Satan is the most miserable creature who ever has existed, And all he wants is for you to be equally miserable with him. Don't listen to it. Instead, realize that just as Mordecai foiled the plot of the conspirators in the book of Esther, Jesus foiled the plot of Satan and and went to the cross of Calvary where Satan thought he was going to win the battle. And that was the very moment in which he defeated him. I want to go in closing to Hebrews chapter 2. Remember, Mordecai was accepted of all his brethren at the end of that great story of Esther. I hope you see now that Esther is not merely a a book of historical interest for the Jewish nation. It's not merely a morality play where there's drama and intrigue and then the good guys win and everybody claps and goes home. No, the book of Esther, like all of the Old Covenant scriptures, are signposts pointing us to our Redeemer. Mordecai was the redeemer for his day. Joseph was a redeemer for his day. Samson and Gideon and David and hosts of God's men and women through the Old Testament were a redeemer for a day. But Jesus is the redeemer forever. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read in verse 11, For both he that sanctifieth, that's him, and they who are sanctified, that's you, are all of one. God is so different from me he's his ways are as far above mine as the heavens are above the earth i can't comprehend his mind i can't understand his ways how could it be that his son the everlasting word of god the messiah jesus christ and someone like me can be said you're cut out of the same cloth you're all of one well remember that in the beginning god said let us make man in our image And so in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. You are the work of Almighty God. Not in the same way that the baboons and the dogs and the cats and the birds and the fish are. Or all the glories of creation, the Grand Canyon or anything else. No, you are the crowning work of God's creation. Where he said, I'm going to make someone like me. And then we, like Satan, rebelled against him. And were banished from his presence. And Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to earth, fights the battle, gives up his very life, and comes back into the presence of God 
with an innumerable host of people that he says, these are my brothers. This is you. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them, he's not ashamed to call you brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Do you believe Jesus was here singing with you this morning? I think I heard him. It was, it was glorious. He was, he was stirring up that spirit of worship. We, we, we will and do according to the working of his mighty power. He works in us both the will and to do of his good pleasure. And, and, and he's singing with us and singing over us and bringing us into the presence of God, making this way open that was seemingly forever closed, saying, I will declare thy name, God, unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. You know, that last phrase of Esther said that Mordecai, was speaking peace to all his seed. Interestingly, we don't see anywhere in the book of Esther that Mordecai actually had any seed. We don't see that he had children. He raised Esther as his own child because her parents were deceased. But we don't see any evidence that he actually had children. And so I think metaphorically, in a type, this is pointing again to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the ultimate seed and has the family of his generation of his seed of whom he is the the federal head the genetic head the representative head and our lord and savior behold i and the children which god hath given me for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Can I say to you that if you're living today in fear and worry, uncertainty and doubt, but you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and this gospel message you've heard this morning rings true to your heart, your fear, your worry, your consternation is entirely optional. You have no reason to hold on to those things. You can let them go because God has answered every one of those problems in his own work, in his own salvation. He came to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You, my friends, you beloved captives of Israel are set free. God bless you.